0: a pipeline. The famous polemic by Andreas Malm doesn't actually answer the question its title poses. You never find out how to blow up a pipeline. What it does tell you is why. And the answer is clear. Because the pipelines are killing us. However, slowly, and it is now faster and faster, the infrastructure we have assembled around us, and the ways of living and consuming that it locks us into, are destroying the Earth support systems on which we rely. You know this, we all know this, it's become a familiar homily, and yet the apocalyptic stakes of the moment have not inspired apocalyptic action. If you do want to find out how to actually blow up a pipeline, how to make thermite, how to accumulate enough fertiliser, or make a detonator, then you're more likely to find yourself these days In obscure corners of the internet, than you are in your local bookshop, in the corner with the Verso titles. Or possibly at the cinema, watching How to Blow Up a Pipeline, an, if you can believe it, sort of film of the book. The film, which is every bit as exciting as the book is, follows a ragtag group of mostly unlikely activists in their attempts to destroy a piece of this most critical infrastructure in Texas. My name is Richard Hames, and I'm the audio producer at Navarra Media. I spoke to Jordan Scholl, co-screenwriter and executive producer of the film, about the stakes of making propaganda now, and the heating world into which the film is arriving. It's playing in UK cinemas now.
1: Oh shit! Oh, it's it. oh. Lower, down. lower down. Oh. It's tipping. It's tipping. It's tipping. Oh. Uh. Wait! Wait! What? Over there. Uh. What is that? I think it's a surveying drone. What's it doing? Uh. While well, using uh. lidar to detect erosion, we gotta hurry the fuck up. Doesn't matter. Just lower it into the yeah. fucking hole. We gotta hurry. Well, is it gonna see it? I mean, you will see Don't this big ass fucking barrel. We gotta get out of here. Don't panic. Slowly. A okay, okay. Just slowly. Guys, I'm gonna drop. Okay. Okay. Slowly. Yeah. Clear. Okay, 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 okay. Drop. Oh, oh shit! What do I do with it? Just leave it. We don't want them to track us. Wait, so did it get us on video? No, it just scans metal. <sighs> Sean, mean? <What do> <sighs> Caps. Job, Careful with them. Yeehaw, buddy, yeah. that was hot.
0: Jordan Shaw, welcome.
1: Thanks, Richard, and thanks for having me on Vera.
0: I'm going to try and keep spoilers to like a low to medium, just for the audience's benefit. The film is structured around essentially a single sweep of action. We join the characters already in the process, the quite advanced stages of planning. And then through the film, we get these intertitles with the characters' names on, and then we're reintroduced to them as their backstories. So we, we go back in time and we find out What are the kinds of often quite kind of exciting events that led them to want to participate in this act of uh, environmental sabotage? And I'd like to do essentially the same thing with you and maybe with the members of the team, the kind of the quartet, I understand that kind of lies behind the the, the conception and execution of this film. So is there a particular moment for you in your backstory that you can identify at which you suddenly decided we must make a film about how or indeed why to blow up a pipeline?
1: I think that everybody alive today uh, who's taking the state of the world seriously lives with a pretty serious amount of existential dread that's just sort of out in the atmosphere because we are, you know, hurtling towards climate apocalypse, have the tools to do something about it and are not doing it. Um, In terms of my own history, you know, I grew up, I grew up in Wyoming, um, in the, you know, hiking in the Teton Mountains and just sort of outdoors all the time. And even in the, you know, 16 years that I had been alive, I remembered climbing up in the Tetons to this, my favorite glacier, the South Teton Glacier, and seeing it recede every year and every year and every year until it was gone. And I think that was a big moment for me, in part because we, the way that climate change was always talked about to me and taught to me was about a future problem and a problem that's gonna happen far away and a problem that is abstract and a problem that like you can't even see with your own eyes, right? And obviously as extreme weather events have become more and more common, that's changing a little bit but it is a maximally abstract concept and one that's difficult to sort of reckon with. And I think until, you know, sometimes it takes getting it into your own life to, to feel it. Daniel Goldhaber, the director of the film, grew up, his parents are climate scientists, you know, they work on climate modeling. So he was always raised with this sort of healthy sense of dread and Ariella was, a, was an activist in, you know, working in LA and, you know, Dan Garber has similar, I, I think, Again, it's, it's existential dread all over the place.
0: So there's this quartet at the center of the the making of the film, of course, also a much larger team, like with any film. Were you all aligned from the beginning in terms of thinking about what you were trying to do with this film? Talk us through some of the, I can imagine, difficulties. I can imagine the kind of negotiations that went into the construction of this film. It's quite unusual in some ways to undermine the notion of like a single auteur, a single director, a single visionary who communicates their, their ideas off the screen. So how was that? What did that process look like?
1: As to the question of whether we were all aligned from the start, I would say no. But also, like, I don't think we were aligned within ourselves, right? When we're talking about the central idea of Andreas's book is that we need to start engaging in property destruction. um, And that is a difficult idea. And the idea of putting that out into the world in a piece of popular media where we are not ourselves are not taking the risk of doing an action like that. But we were putting that idea out is also something with complicated moral and ethical stakes it was very nice to do that in a group because it was even for me myself i was you know i have conflicted feelings i have conflicted thoughts i i I recognize that there's a lot of complication going on in this it's the nature of these questions around climate change that they don't have easy answers and that they so often lead to impasse and so part of what was so great about working in a collective to do this is that we actually had to push past The very understandable tendency to just throw your hands up and say, well, I don't know what I feel about this, because it's a really, really hard problem. And so I think some of the conversations we were having, some of the the feelings that we were having just made it very directly into the characters, right? Because this is a movie about eight characters... Um, we, we tried very hard to make it such that none of them were the single protagonist. This is not, you know, one superhero comes to save the day and preserve the status quo as superhero movies always do. Um, but it was eight people who came together, who all had different reasons for being there, who all thought different things, who might not have, have agreed about significant points of why they were doing what they were doing. but at the end of the day, realized that they wanted to do the same action and came to a consensus and did it. And that was very much the process of writing the screenplay with Daniel and Ariella, of going through the edit with Daniel and Ariella and our fantastic editor, Dan Garber, um, is that we would sit in the room and we would push through the impasses that we were running into. And eventually we would come to something that we felt was all Uh, Felt all of us could agree on, and was defensible, and that we could uh, put into the world um, with confidence.
0: It is quite an unusual project to try and adapt a Verso book. I mean, I don't think there are any other Verso books that have made it to film, as far as I'm aware. Maybe there are. uh, If people want to, this is this is the first. If if anyone wants to write in with a with an objection, I know that um, the Soviet director Eisenstein had a project to make a film of Das Kapital. The Marx's kind of masterwork which never came to fruition because of course he couldn't work out how to encapsulate all the kinds of the abstractions all the kind of difficulties but I'm kind of wondering like why this book like what was so inspirational about it what was so kind of compelling about this particular work that meant that it had to become this document which is not really a translation of the book
1: I mean, the ideas in Andreas's book are not new to the conversation. People have been talking about tactical escalations like this for quite a while. Um, the historical examples that he uses are also uh, things that people have been talking about, right? But I think there is something very exciting at the core of the book, which uh, I'll, I'll say two different things in that I think so much of thought around climate change can either be Pollyanna-ish, you know, humans have always technologically adapted and I don't know, we'll figure it out, right? We'll, we'll throw selenium sulfur Light up into the atmosphere and like you know the technocrats are on it um or it can just simply be despairing right it can recognize that the problems are enormous that the structures that keep them in place are enormous and say well i guess you know time to figure out how we can learn to die right and that's something that's really enlivening about Andreas's book is that he both recognizes the scale of the problem but then instead of taking that to translate to doomerism he says well because the problem is so large we need to take these steps. And he can tell you there are these very practical, very direct things that you can do if you were not a person in power that have worked in previous movements, right? That's no guarantee that they're going to work in this movement. But we can look to the historical record and we can, you know, see suffragettes torching letter boxes and burning down tea pavilions. And we can look at the spear of the nation, you know, carrying out systematic arson and car bombing. And we can see how those very directly contributed to the overthrow of the systems that they were opposed to. Right? And so I think that there's something extremely exciting in that prospect and, and partly that feeling of excitement was one of the things that we were going to wanted to translate into the book. The other thing that I think also helped Andres's book really connect to people, which is maybe the very central core of what we wanted to adapt, was making a transition to thinking of the infrastructure. Of the fossil fuel industry as the enemy, right? There is a, I think, very human and natural tendency to want to to want to put a human face on the enemy and to say, all right, we need to think about the CEOs and the oil execs and the people who are investing in this and 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 all of those people, and we need to think directly about them, which is useful and can be useful to galvanize people, but isn't necessarily the best way of trying to conceive of. Um, Uh, systemic change and might not be the strategically best way of going about things too. And for Andreas, you know, for instance, and uh, this was a fact that was in the movie that uh, ended up dropping out, but in the United States, there are over 190,000 miles of active liquid petroleum pipeline, right? That's about 100 times the length of the US-Mexico border. And as we know from political kerfuffles in the United States, America, the world's superpower, the mightiest military that's ever been put together, still can't maintain the security of that border, still can't patrol it all, still can't monitor it all, right? And the fact that there's a hundred times that length of these pipelines in the United States points to the fact that they are not defensible, right? That they cannot be monitored, that they cannot, they, they cannot be protected. So the infrastructure is there, it's within reach, um, it's not defensible. And I think that gives the lie to... The, this idea that the fossil fuel industry puts forward, which helps it maintain its place in the status quo, which that's it is untouchable, right? That it's too big to be attacked directly, that it has people in power entirely on its side, entirely captured, and that therefore there's nothing that you can do about it, right? And I think that central excitement of Andres' book is something we wanted to adapt. And so in the movie, you know, the bad guy, there's if this is Ocean's Eleven for eco-terrorism, there's no Andy Garcia except for the pipeline. Right, the bad guy is the infrastructure, and that's what the characters are out to attack.
0: And the police at the end, right?
1: But the, I mean, the police are the the police are the stooges of the villain, as as so often in in the world.
0: Right, I believe uh, this is what we call fetishism. <laughs> I'm really interested in. I want to talk about a lot more about a lot of those kind of forms of sabotage that we've been seeing over the last kind of seven years, although particularly around the. Dakota Access Pipeline in a second, but have to stay on this kind of question about Andreas Malm. Like, what was his involvement? We're in the middle of what we're calling the Malmstrom on Navarra at the moment. It's not my term. We're going to re-up an interview we did with him on Downstream, which people should go and listen to uh, in the main feed. What was his reaction to seeing the film? What was his reaction, to, like, conceptualizing the film? How did he get involved?
1: We came up with this idea and, and decided we needed to move really fast. It was during COVID. We thought maybe we'd be able to get in filming during sort of right between two waves, which is what ended up happening. So we, we were feeling a big sense of urgency, um, you know, it's also for, for reasons that are not about the practicalities of filming as well, but so we wrote to Andreas, um, and of course because he is you know a Swedish academic Marxist, we got the the sort of out of office reply that you would never receive in America, which was you know I'm on paternity leave, I will not be checking my email for two months. Do not try and get a hold of me in any other way. And we're like, oh uh, well, I guess that dream is dead. Um but you know, he emailed us back three days later and was like, All right, I would love to hear what you guys are thinking. And you know, so we got on a Zoom with him and and we we gave our pitch and he was sort of giving us nothing. He was, you know, frowny and severe and 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 we thought that we were completely blowing it. And then at the end he goes, Yes, this is very good. I think we should do this. Let's make this new <laughs> <video."> <laughs> I mean, he's been a great partner the entire time. Um, you know, we talked through a lot of the ideas with him. He put us in touch with a lot of activists who we sort of went through the research process with. We showed him the first full draft of the screenplay. And the only real note he had was that he didn't believe there were punks in America anymore. Uh, I think in part he was thinking of like the Liberty Spikes, you mm. know, Dead Kennedy leather jacket and everything. And we're like, oh, there's they're just crust punks now. It's fun. They're around um But yeah, he he's been incredibly supportive the whole time. He came to set. He has a he has an extremely brief cameo in the movie that was supposed to be longer.
0: I don't think I noticed that. Do you want to tell uh, our listeners give them some like hints about when he appears? Because I, I I I've seen it and I didn't I didn't notice
1: him. It is at the very 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 extreme end, and I think he is truly in about five frames. Of okay, the
0: movie. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> Keep your eyes peeled. There's someone who I haven't been able to locate the exact quote who says in May 68, possibly it's Jacques Camus, who's a French theorist of the time, says that the principal goal of the mobilizations that are taking place in Paris at that time is not to affect change directly, but to make revolutionaries, to make the people who will then go on to presumably perform the revolution. Is that a goal
1: of the film? I like that way of putting the question. There's a peculiarity about attacking fossil fuel infrastructure compared to earlier forms of sabotage, right? And Andreas points this out in the the book, which is that, you know, when when suffragettes were tortured letterboxes, you know, the letterboxes themselves only had a sort of tenuous connection to the actual system of patriarchy that they were fighting against. Whereas now attacking fossil fuel infrastructure is also attacking the means of uh, the destruction of the earth and uh, attacking the very materiality of the system that is fighting against. And I think that's important. And it makes, it makes these actions in some way more morally defensible. However, I think there can also be a bit of a confusion there, which is that because be, because of that very thing that we don't always necessarily recognize that this is also a symbolic act also one that is meant to make the point that infrastructure like this can be put out of commission that is being used to communicate the dissatisfaction of the mass of people. And so I think that's also an, that, that form of the, the subjective and experiential aspects of doing an action like this are absolutely something that I think is crucial to thinking about what the point of an action would be right um, both it's communicative and and it's experiential thing and really like turning you know an argumentative manifesto into a movie that was also so much more of what we were after right this is there, there's no characters there's no story in the book we wanted to turn it into characters and story because we wanted to explore it on the level of lived reality on the level, on the level of experience on the level of feeling right we wanted to to have a piece of media that people could sit down in a dark room, hopefully with their friends, that they can talk to afterwards, and you know think about or or experience something of the feeling of what it's like to go from um, knowing the scope of the problem to deciding to do something militant about it, right? It, and, and and cinema, I think, in, is a particularly good area for that, right? You brought up Eisenstein before, right? Something that the Soviet filmmakers really knew inside and outside was that cinema is a unique art for being able to approach subjective experience and for being able to create um, emotional and even intellectual identification with certain um, positions and feelings right and so when in America we're looking at Hollywood cinema and we're seeing movies like Top Gun Maverick which however good about a piece of filmmaking it is, it is certainly transparent propaganda for the American military apparatus. When we're seeing theaters completely chock full of Marvel movies, again, in which a a superhero is the person who keeps the status quo in place, um, those are things that are doing their battle on the train of subjectivity in many ways. And so trying to make something that is a Fun, fast-paced, heist movie genre film that can hopefully appeal to people who don't already necessarily agree with everything that's in the movie or in the book is also meant to be a way of trying to to um, bring the battle to subjectivity.
0: I think that's a really, really great way of phrasing it. And I would make a case, and maybe I'll make it a bit later, that not just cinema but actually things like memes and uh, quite a lot of social media is also operating on the level of that battle for subjectivity on the level of that battle over intellectual identification with a
1: certain set of ideas. I think that's a crucial aspect of the media environment that we are living in right now is that we are very, more than at any point in history, we are plugged into things that are trying to uh, affect our subjectivity at every moment, right? And that are trying to take our own capacity to do it for ourselves, uh, away from us, right? And so that requires then that people be relative, that people be quite conscientious about the forms of self-cultivation, um, like consciousness raising, as well as um, being careful about, you know, what we're letting, because the, the, the machine learning programs have figured out what happens in our brain when certain colors do certain things, right? They are very good at reprogramming us.
0: One kind of skeptical line of attack, I guess, about this kind of filmmaking comes from you know, my friends who I've been speaking to about it who have not seen the film, which is a kind of classic position to like occupy <laughs> as a film critic, saying that by being a fast-paced action film, it's kind of captured in advance by the kind of mass media spectacle apparatus that it's trying to kind of get us out of, right? And this is so- something we can talk about in terms of some you know concepts in film theory, like, for example, interpassivity. Interpassivity being where The medium that you are engaging with performs your response for you. So the classic example is the laugh track in like a sitcom, right? You don't have to laugh because the sitcom laughs for you. And therefore, you feel like you've laughed, but you never actually laugh. In the same way, I feel like there's a kind of a possible critique of this kind of film that you go along and you watch someone blow up a pipeline. And that's kind of like, oh, you feel like, oh, I've now blown up a pipeline. And I'm wondering, like, how do you respond to that kind of skepticism, how you kind of navigate that as a possible complicated consequence of uh, making a film rather than actually going out and blowing off a pipeline?
1: I appreciate the question. And obviously, this is something that we were thinking about a lot while we were putting this movie together and while we were thinking about, you know, even what we were doing as, you know, as as people putting this media out into the world. And to 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 those critics, I would say, please also watch the movie. Um, I I. And I'm, I'm, you know, if 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 they if people watch it and feel the same way, I, I'm very happy to engage on that level too. Um, uh, but I think, you know, this this also came up. The, there was there was a New York Times review of the film that basically ended. Uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but basically ended by saying, um, if the movie was actually radical, it wouldn't have such sympathetic characters. I'm, I'm like, I I find that criticism very difficult to understand. Um, and I think that it goes, it's an extreme form of, of, I think, part of what you're saying. And to go back to talking about this as a form of storytelling, to think about, thinking about what stories are out there, even if we just think about stories of leftist action, right? So often, these are stories that end up in failure, defeat, uh, the group falling apart. We've, in some ways, gotten to this situation in which, people feel like if you're consuming leftist media it should feel like eating your vegetables right because things are it's a, it's because we live in a difficult time and things are difficult and the problems are big and they're real but also every move you know every mass movement and every leftist movement that has ever gotten any traction has also been fun and it's also been sexy in some way and there are also people in it who are you know also just there to get laid or to hang out or to dance or because their friends are doing it. Um, and so I think part of what we wanted to do is that, yeah, if we're living in a world in which so many leftist stories end in defeat, we wanted to, to tell a leftist story where it was fun and it ended in success and, you know, not without consequence and not without cost, of course, um, to not spoil too much, uh, <laughs> But but yeah, and I think that the, the more that we tell stories about failure, the more that failure, you know, the more that we the more that we tell stories about failure, the more we're living in a world in which our imagination says that the only way that leftist action can end is failure. Right. And so uh, I, I don't think telling mainstream Hollywood story, you know, main, main, doing these mainstream movies is the be all and end all, but I think it should be one part of it. Right. And I think, I think giving people the ability to, to look at an action like this and say, it could work. It could be, you know, it could be fun. Um, it could be cool, uh, is, is only a positive as of the question of catharsis, right. Of I sat down and watched this movie and the characters did something radical. And so maybe now I, Uh, sort of affectively feel absolved of doing something radical. I think that that is absolutely always a danger. But part of what we wanted to take seriously with the movie too, is that if people go out and blow up a pipeline, it's not because they watched a movie or because they didn't watch a movie. It's because we have created a world in which we are ransoming the collective future of humanity, human civilization and the rest of life on earth for the extraction of profit by a relatively small number of people and international conglomerates, right? That the, the felt reality of that, that living in that situation is so much more effectively intense than any movie or piece of media ever could be. And so I think we can push around at the edges a little bit and I hope that we can open imagination and we can think about what's possible in new ways. Um, but when it really comes down to it, it's the, it's the world that is gonna push people one way or the other.
0: There's this famous uh, Adorno quote, which I'm going to mangle, which is, whenever I go to the cinema, despite my best vigilance, I always come out more stupid. And I think in some ways he might be correct. And there might even be an argument for this film making one more stupid. But I also think there's an argument for that what we need is a certain kind of strategic or like tactical stupidity a certain kind of bloody-mindedness, a certain kind of fanaticism, a certain kind of rejection of the incredibly nuanced discussion about, oh, like yes, but in this case, blah, blah, blah. you know, in history, we found this, and then in that case, on, but that was different because there's a sort of an urgency, an existential risk that climate change poses that I think makes a good case against a certain nuanced kind of like sophistication.
1: Yeah. I mean, me personally, in addition to working in film, I'm an academic, right? I finished my PhD two weeks ago. And so I am very, very uh, familiar with extremely nuanced conversations that don't lead anywhere.
0: Welcome to Navarro FM. <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: and and look to, you know, like in the United States, the 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 left is having lots of really nuanced conversations. And, you know, sometimes in ways that I think are in good faith, and sometimes in ways that I think are in bad faith. But One of the reasons that the right is doing really well is because they're not super interested in nuance, Um, you know. And I think that in some in some ways it's an easier project. It's a project of tearing things down instead of building them up. It's a it's a project uh, that is that is sort of by nature cynical because it is trying to enlist the mass of people. Um, to work against their interests and for the interests of the few. But the the leaders of the right-wing movement here are very happy to say anything that they want and to abandon nuance and to to lie, cheat, and steal. Not even lying, it, it's bullshit. It's, it's an absolute disregard for whether things are true or not. It's just what gets people to come along, right? And certainly I don't want the left to become... You know, a bunch of cynical crooks manipulating people into doing things. But I think it's also very important to think about what are the affective conditions where people will act instead of sitting at home and tweeting or sitting at home and reading or sitting home and writing or, you know, uh, as for myself, making a movie, right? What's, you know, what's going to actually be lead to action?
0: Hmm. I wonder what you think the block there is. Like, what is the block between the current state of the world and mass climate action? I can definitely see an argument that this film is part of that bridge but what else is in that bridge
1: i truly believe and this is coming from my perspective and this is i mean this this is why we made this movie i truly believe that a huge part of it is this feeling that the system is too big to be attacked um that it is that that they have already captured the world governments and there's simply nothing that can be done right um, and that can lead to all sorts of different things it can lead to a it can lead to an incrementalism a sort of you know washington and governmental and ngo focused incrementalism that often veers very close to defeatism and it can lead to just a, a simple straightforward defeatism So one of the examples that Andreas uses in the book, in addition to, I think, Jonathan Franzen novels, who's also uh, sort of on this page, is Roy Scranton, um, who says that because, you know, he cannot imagine not eating steak, that all of humanity is doomed um, and that we cannot change our ways and that we might as well just give up and, you know, have have a couple more drinks as the Titanic sinks. Um, and that I think that flows very directly from the sense that there's nothing to be done. And again, part of Andreas's provocation is that there are tools that we have used very recently that have worked in the living memory of people who are here today that have worked that we are not using in the climate movement. Um, and I think that is such an important message of the book. It's not even, it's not even that we know that they'll work. It's that we haven't tried them yet
0: there's definitely a sense that the movement that will win over the next 10 years and i think it's interesting to counterpose the far right and the far left on this is the movement that will be able to most effectively produce mass experiences of de inhibition of the feeling that action is possible and i wonder if you wanted to kind of delve into like in some ways the history of like the propaganda of the deed so the propaganda of the deed is a sort of a, in some ways failed tradition uh in anarchism, or as it was called at the time, nihilism in the late 1800s, has its critics inside that movement, many of them. Kropotkin uh, says that, you know, quote, a structure based on centuries of history cannot be destroyed with a few kilos of dynamite, which is in some ways like a very, very apposite quote for thinking about blowing up pipelines. But the way they understood the propaganda of the deed was in two ways. First of it, as a defence against the ongoing violence of society as it like actually existed. And I think there's certainly a climate justification for essentially the same thing. And the second one kind of branches out into this tradition that we might identify with someone like Frantz Fanon, uh, the psychoanalyst, Martinique philosopher, revolutionary, who in the wretched of the earth supports violence as a strategy because it is socially and psychologically freeing for the colonized people uh, against their oppressors, About whom they have this enormous inferiority complex, and there's a sense that that sort of like that kind of violence can be psychologically and personally transformative as well.
1: I'm going to come at this from what might seem like a bit of an odd angle, and start by talking about the January 6th Capitol insurrection in the United States, when right wing Trumpist and QAnon supporters, you know, stormed the Capitol building and like stole Nancy Pelosi's dais and whatever. Being on the left and talking to lefties about this, I think there was there was this huge sense of like, what a horrible, what both what a horrible thing and what a stupid thing, right? But as I was rereading Andreas's book, and I was as I was rereading um, Rise Up, Women, Diane Atkinson's extremely excellent um, book about the suffragettes. Like, I don't think that that action was itself out of line with a history of militant tactics, right? They were storming into a place of power to show that they were extremely dissatisfied with the situation. Obviously, it's an illegal, it's an illegal act. And so they were risking arrest and persecution, which is what many of them have gotten. You know, obviously, I don't agree with the reasons why they did it. So I'm not politically in support of the action itself. But in terms of it being an action in line with the history of militancy, I. Think that it is, right? Again, this is this sort of, there was also this, you know, this sort of talking point of well, well, it didn't do anything because they didn't know what they wanted to do. But like it did a lot. It did a lot to change how people in the United States felt about the political situation in this country. It was something that really, really deeply emotionally affected people. In in America, the right wing understands that inviting somebody into a movement that makes them feel good and that validates them and that says you're welcome here and that says your grievances are real is a way of affectively mobilizing people, right? And obviously this is always the road to fascism is scapegoating uh, minorities, is scapegoating the poor, is scapegoating all sorts of people, right? These are are so often, as I've been saying, definitionally these movements that are trying to mobilize people against their own material interests. But I still think we need to ask the question of um, how can we also make a movement that feels good right and this is something that people who have been in the climate camps talk about um, um, it feels good right being there and being in solidarity with people who you know at least in some way agree with you sharing meals um, uh, you know playing music chatting talking like these climate camps are these situations where people feel some sort of human vitality and um, And I think that figuring out how to keep that forefront and to channel that is is extremely important, right? I don't think you get to the exercise of power without being able to have affective joy um, and togetherness.
0: So we're starting as people sort of trying to instigate climate action to some extent from relatively atomized kinds of societies. And to go back to the film for a second, the characters in the film, none of them... Again, minor spoiler, none of them, as far as I remember, start from being participants in a mass movement, and then realising that that road is to some extent blocked, and then sort of escalating their tactics from there. One of the characters, possibly two of the characters, is involved in some sort of divestment strategy um, activity, but none of them are, uh, as far as we see, involved in kind of mass protests. Possibly, of course that's a budgeting issue with the film because uh, that kind of shots are expensive, right? But I'm wondering how you saw the relationship between collective action and its like limitations and those background stories, most of which seemed built around not a sort of collective grievance or a sense of collective threat, but around a personal backstory full of tragedy and horror in often
1: that's a really interesting question and nobody has actually put it quite that way before so so I appreciate that um, and yeah I think you know we we certainly didn't show I, I think the probably the closest character to what you're thinking of is Sean who is one of the characters that's involved in divest and you know we sort of we see him at college and he's doom scrolling on a nice new laptop that his parents bought him. And, you know, we sort of know that he it sort of implied that he has felt the, you know, the feelings that a lot of people who are not directly affected by uh, climate change or the fossil fuel industry in a particularly traumatic way, has felt that same sort of ambient existential dread um, but without having having a personal stake. And so I, whether he came from mass organizing or not, um, I'm not entirely sure. I, that's certainly not part of the backstory. But I think that was the person with whom we were trying to talk about this transition from feeling like you should do something and you should do something within the prescribed ways that are told, uh, you know, that, that we are given, that we're supposed to do things, which is divestment, non, you know, peaceful protest, massing in the streets, all of these things are, you know. Um, and that uh, there is a yeah that there there's a, a form of disenchantment that can come with doing that for a long time and not seeing any change right and I think to one of the points that Andreas makes in the book though that I think is very important is that he is absolutely not saying that militant tactics that property destruction um, should can should or can replace the mass movement, that it always only has to be an appendage to it, right? And I think if we think about something like the suffragettes, who there was a moderate suffragette movement in the UK for about 40 years before militancy started. And I think if, if there had not been that, if there had not been that massive group of women and Men who supported women's enfranchisement. If there had not been that that large scale um, social statement and and awareness that people felt this way, uh, that the militancy probably wouldn't have done that much, right? Um, and in terms of you know the radical flank theory. The, it's also very useful for you know, the, uh, having a militant flank is also very useful for giving legitimacy to the more moderate flank, right? This is what we saw in the United States civil rights movement: is that um, the the more militant side of the movement was what made it seem like, okay, I guess we should negotiate with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, I guess that like the things that they're asking for are not as crazy or radical as we thought, right? There is a shifting of the window of possibility that comes with a radical flank that also requires in some ways a slightly antagonistic relationship between um, the mainstream and the radical flank, right? Um, Which is a paradox if, if you're one of the people who's trying to be in the radical flank because you know that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing if you are not being denounced by the mainstream, but also at what point do you say, oh, actually the mainstream has a real point and maybe I'm not doing the right thing.
0: I think denouncement is part of it, but also at the same time, there's also a way in which a mass movement can make forms of radical flank activity, sabotage, and so on, feel quite legible. So we can understand, oh, that's what they are trying to do with this action, which often go unclaimed, which often go kind of like, you know, uh, just sort of random acts of sabotage. And I want to kind of point towards two different um, examples of this in recent history, There were two activists um, who sabotaged the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2016 to 2017. And they did various kinds of sabotage while it was still being built um, with a welding iron uh, or some piece of welding equipment. And they managed to quite severely damage the pipe, but not obviously destroy it, and indeed, very obviously, not prevent its um, uh, ultimate construction, and then the kind of saga that comes after that. But they were never caught, And what they ultimately ended up doing was calling a press conference on themselves to explain why it was they had done the things that they had done. Because otherwise, they felt like these kind of disconnected actions, kind of free-floating, unclear in their motivation. And that was the case, even though, of course, there was the Indigenous-led Standing Rock protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline in the US. And the other one I want to highlight is a recent wave of white nationalists, essentially Christian nationalists, attacks against electrical substations in the US. It's thought that um, there are about 5,000 substations across the US. It's thought you could basically knock out power to almost everyone if you just destroyed nine of those. So, you know, you were talking about the kind of the weakness of pipeline infrastructure. Um, you know, the electricity infrastructure is is really kind of on another level. Of course, from the perspective of the climate, by the time its electricity it's already too late, like the CO2 is already in the atmosphere. And so that doesn't have the same goals. But I'm wondering whether or not you think there's a sort of a role that the film can play in making legible or making understandable future forms of climate activism to give them kind of sympathetic readings sort of in advance.
1: I I certainly hope so. And I think that it's absolutely one of the things that we are hoping to do with the film, right? And one of the ideas that comes into play in the the film is the idea of a necessity defense, right? Um, I think it's a self-defense is an idea that in some ways feels universally applicable and is actually in part very useful in the United States because it is often a, a conservative point of view talking about self defense right there is an understanding that if somebody is pointing a gun at your head that you have the right to you know take that gun away from them and at the very least dismantle it even if that requires some interpersonal violence right and in a situation in which the fossil fuel industry has a gun to the proverbial head of the world Right. There is a very strong argument that I think a lot of people can understand if you get them to believe the premise uh, that there is a right to take that gun away and dismantle it. Right. Um, uh, Even if it requires something that, under normal situations, you wouldn't be ethically. Uh, okay with right, and so there's an idea within American jurisprudence that I believe is also you know being talked about in other places of the necessity defense, which is going to court and saying that we did we did this action because we had no choice because we were threatened and it was therefore a necessity to to do this, right? And obviously, if anybody were to ever win a case on the necessity defense against fossil fuel infrastructure, that would be enormous and truly changed literally everything um, overnight, especially in terms of what people were comfortable investing in. But there is a moral kernel at the heart of that, that I think is extremely human and extremely understandable. Um, and part of what we wanted to do with this movie is talk about why these eight characters feel like blowing up a pipeline is an act of self-defense, right? And hopefully, you know, and that's part two of making it uh, uh, what's supposed to be a fun actiony genre movie. Um, You know, somebody, somebody on our crew was talking about being at a screening of cocaine bear with their QAnon mother and um, seeing the trailer for this movie come on and their mom turned to them and said, that movie looks great. And like, Wonderful. Great. Hopefully, you know, we can get some people in the door with it being a heist movie and then take the time to have eight characters, you know, who all of their reasons for wanting to do this are explained and maybe build a little bit of, you know, even if it, even if it's not, okay, now I'm on board. It's, well, I guess I understand what their point is. I guess I understand where they're coming from. I guess this isn't just the, the crazies that I see depicted on the news.
0: Going to see a screening of cocaine bear with your QAnon mother is like just a, such a A now, Uh, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) despite the sort of the necessity defence you have seen in the US, like we have in the UK, a quite substantial escalation of police powers. Um, You can get what's called a terrorism enhancement to your sentence if you are caught sabotaging um, critical infrastructure in the US. These are laws that, as far as I understand, were brought in after the Dakota Access Pipeline protests in 2016, 2017. I was wondering if you could talk about the sort of legal environments into which the film sort of emerges. Ariella in one of her interviews says that like the reason why it became a heist movie um, was, quote, not wanting to go to jail. <laughs> and I'm wondering like how did legal concerns shape the structure of the film? And
1: yeah. So I mean, so as for the police situation in America, it's bad. It's real bad. Um, I mean, you mentioned Jessica Resnicek and Ruby Montoya earlier who sabotaged the Dakota Access Pipeline. You know, Jessica Resnicek was given eight years in jail, a sentence that was upheld in 2022, just last year. Um, And that was based on a terrorism upcharge, right, for the type of sabotage and vandalism that they did sentencing guidelines would have been, I think, two to four years, right? Um, Ruby Montoya was also sentenced, you know, to six years and to pay $3 million in restitution, again, under this terrorism upcharge, right? And that $3 million isn't realistic, it's something that's meant to keep her in debt peonage for the rest of her life so that she cannot consider doing anything ever again, right? Um, You know, in in Louisiana, protester, you know, water protectors were fighting against the Bayou Bridge pipeline, which was going to connect Louisiana oil f- oil fields fields to the Dakota Access pipeline and there, you know, 25% of local sheriff's deputies were given permission by their you know by their sheriff's departments to work as private security for the pipeline company which they did while they were being paid by the pipeline and not by the taxpayer which they did in their police uniforms and they arrested people right and i think from that you can see that it's very very clear which side of the issue the law is on and who it's supporting and who it's protecting. And so when thinking about a more militant tactic or when thinking, I think then it's no surprise that people feel that they need to act outside of the law. If it's so clear who the law is going to protect, you know, you brought up these, these critical infrastructure bills, and it's not even, it's not even for acts of sabotage, right? The, the Louisiana, the Louisiana bill, for instance, makes it a felony to trespass on energy company property, even if the intention is for peaceful protest and that felony can be, um, you know, charged with up to five years in prison. And so, you know, I I, I grew up and I grew up being told that these massive nonviolent movements achieved their ends through staying exclusively nonviolent and that you know, as long as you play by those rules, you'll be able to change the world, right? But we are getting to a, situ- a legal situation in which even nonviolent protest has, is being absolutely ruled out of bounds, right? So that's my answer about the the, the police situation here. As for the, the sort of legal status of the movie, I, I mean, I don't think, yeah, I, I don't think we were making huge decisions about the movie to, uh, you know, avoid or not avoid legal culpability. But I think part of what is, what is good about having a heist movie for this is that you don't spend a heist. You don't spend like all of the time that you're watching a heist movie about people robbing a bank going, Hmm, I wonder if people should rob banks or not. Isn't that like a bad thing to do? Like that's against the law. Why are these people robbing this bank? Oh my God. Um, but, you know, the the history of, of heist movies is also one in which you are learning to empathize with characters who decide that they are doing something outside of the scope of the law. And so I think that that is also, you know, yeah, as the law narrows what we can do, people are going to have to act in ways that are outside the law. And so we need to be able to understand why they're doing that and maybe sometimes to even root for them.
0: Speaking of the law, it's been a sort of point of contention of the film's reception, That there was to some extent someone involved in counterterrorism who was involved in the film's production in some way. So I have a bunch of different questions about this. Like, obviously, the main one is like, how much can you tell us about that? Or like, what was their involvement? Like, what were they trying to do there? What was, you know, that kind of thing. But I also want to get onto like a another level of question beyond that, which is how do you plan for the kind of immediate suspicion that more or less any piece of kind of left media is is received with
1: so we can be um, uh, we can be very specific about how this person helped out on the film we can be not very specific about who this person is to protect their anonymity because it would be very bad for them if they were to be known Um, so this person uh, does counterterrorism contracting work for the for the US government but basically is a bomb nerd right really loves bombs really likes building bombs, really likes exploding bombs, really likes teaching people to build bombs, uh, and watched so many movies in which there are bombs and got angry every time that it was wrong, right? And so really wanted to help us be able to uh, put bombs in our movie that were actually how you would build a bomb and that were pretty accurate. Uh, And that truly was the extent of this person's involvement in the movie. They did not read any of the script except when we wrote the bomb-making sequences. We sent them the bomb-making sequences so that they could tell us if they were correct or not, right? Um, But they didn't give notes on story. They didn't see any of the rest of the script, any of that, right? This was was truly, truly, truly a technical consultant. Um, And for us, it's like it's also important to have the bombs in the movie be pretty exactingly accurate because so much of Andreas's point is that actions like these are possible within the life world of like ordinary people. And so I think it would be extremely disingenuous to make a movie and just sort of like movie magic, the bomb part of it. Right. We were trying to think about what it would feel like for characters to do this, what it would actually be like to go through that action. And so for that, I think it was very important to have um the 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 sort of bombs be accurate, right? Um, as for preparing for left wing suspicion, I don't know. I think it's <laughs> uh, sometimes I feel like you know you just have to do it anyway and know that like we have gotten really good criticism from people who have watched the movie. I think we have gotten very little. Bad face criticism from people who have watched the movie, and I think we have gotten some from people who haven't watched it. Right? There are difficult questions of strategy and tactics and ethics and morality that the movie brings up and has uh, opinions about, and I am very very happy to engage in any of those on substantive terms. Right? Um, And that's and that I think I think that's sort of at some time at some point that's sort of all you can do.
0: I have a question. Another question about the reception of the film i mentioned earlier that after films perhaps like the new medium of intellectual identification is memes and it seems like the film is almost like destined to become a series of gifs to become a series of like obscure post-ironic meta-ironic hyper-ironic memes in which people kind of invoke the mood of the film without actually uh maybe maybe even without actually ever seeing it right and that will probably take place in a sort of a a warren of like discord servers and like instagram group chats and people hanging out on like you know the platforms of the future and i wonder is that possible to plan for is it something you thought about in the reception of the film are you trying to make a mood that can then be like deployed at kind of you know particular moments or memified in various ways
1: I I really really like that. Um, Yeah, I hope we're making a mood. That sounds great. I hope that you know you can evoke the whatever the how to how to blow up a pipeline mood. And uh, you know, I I, in in terms of planning for that during the creative process, I don't think necessarily. Um, But with that being said, you know, like the movie was shot on sixteen millimeter. Um, our, you know, when we when we sort of knew who our director of photography was going to be, Tehila T- 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 DiCastro, De- De this is her first, like, full-length feature. Um, she's absolutely phenomenal. Um, and we, you know, had this meeting with her where she was like, uh, a lot of people were pitching a, like, very, very dark, gritty, sort of, like, for- forbidding, You know experience as as the look of the film and tequila said i don't want to do that i want to make a movie that my dad would like right he really likes lawrence of arabia he really likes heat he really likes thief like i want to kind of make a dad movie uh, and, you know, this is on 16 millimeter out in the desert. It's very warm. It's It's got the sort of well being, I think, hyper contemporary. It also has this like sort of 70, 70s political thriller vibes. And so definitely we were thinking about what is the sort of affective mood that we'd be able, like to be able to conjure with it, because I think a lot of those movies do have um, a mood of radical possibility, and a mood of um, the potential departure from status quo and mainstream, and 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 all of that stuff. Um, and I think that's probably all I have to say about that. I am p- personally extremely not online, um, so I I don't I don't uh, fully understand um, the way that the social media is going to circulate this in any way. Um, but my 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 collaborators have been sending me many of the online reactions. So I have been more online in the last two months than I have ever been before.
0: <laughs> Despite
1: finishing your PhD,
0: yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, good job. Yeah, yeah. Um, the film ends with. A sequence, much like the one it starts with, so it ends with uh, with the tire extinguishers. This kind of series of protests in which people deflate the tires using sometimes knives, using sometimes just like unscrewing the air cap. I don't know what that's called on a tire. You know, deflating SUV tires in various ways. It ends with a substantial escalation of that tactic to let's just say another mode of luxury transport. What? kind of responsibilities do you think you hold for that kind of invocation of violence for that kind of normalization of violence as a tactic on the left what are the stakes of that
1: yeah this was obviously a huge question a thing that we were thinking about for the entire process of the movie and i think is 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 very much the heart of like what is Uh, yeah, I think the the heart of the important ethical question around the movie. And so when we were thinking about the ending of the movie, you know, we had thought about doing this and a lot of people sort of wanted this, uh, a sort of like sequence that shows that the, the action that the characters take have had, you know, widespread effects, seeing the price of gas rise and seeing news commentators talk about the action and seeing, you know, even like right-wing militias protecting gas stations or whatever, you know, this sort of like spiraling, you know, effects, right? And we ended up not going that way for a couple of reasons. One is because we certainly, with this movie, did not want to say that, like, oh, we're going to do one action, and then, you know, bing bang, boom, like the effects are there, and everything's in place, right? Um, climate change is solved, or, or <laughs> the, the climate war is fully kicked off, right? Um and this was this was always a movie that was about these eight characters, and we wanted to really stay with them. And the very end, the part that you're referring to, is the only only time that we move outside of the lives of these eight characters. And I think that the Truly the only thing that the ending posits is that if somebody does an action like the ones our characters do, that it will spread and it will spread in a way that they are not in control of, right? Like in, I know how thoroughly our characters planned this action because we wrote the planning sequence. Um, You know, they, they thought about what they were doing. They thought about the moral consequences of it and they are attacking a piece of, Um, you know, corporate infrastructure that is specifically used for transporting fossil fuel, right? As for the group that does the action that you're talking about at the end, I don't know how much they've planned, right? I don't know if they figured out how to contain the, 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 pollution consequences of what they're doing. I don't know if they have thought about how morally defensible this is. I don't know if they have thought about how they're going to try and represent, get it represented in the media. I don't know any of those things. Right. And that's in part because they're now going to do this thing that's out of our characters' hands. Right. And we were trying to keep our finger, to keep our thumb off the scale at the end a little bit. It's interesting. It's interesting that we have people who interpret that ending very, very differently, right? We have some people who say, yes, amazing. I'm so glad that now people are doing this. And we have people who saying, saying, oh, well, I can stand behind what the characters did, but like, you're right, things, other things like that might happen. And it, that is so much of what we wanted to do with this movie, was to actually give people the opportunity to identify with it in different, multiple different points and in multiple different ways and engage in it in different ways. And to be able to like have the same thing to talk about and have different opinions and hopefully, you know, work through them. It's one of the reasons that we cared so much about actually having a theatrical release here is because so much of we want to ha- what we want to happen is for people to talk to each other.
0: If there's one thing that can be said with certainty about a strategy of escalation, it is that you will escalate into a kind of uncertainty.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Which is a good parable for the strategic or a good summary, perhaps, of the strategic consequences of the film itself.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, that is, we, you know, we have put it into the world now and things are going to happen and a lot of them are out of, you know, most of them are out of our control.
0: That's a great place to end it. Thank you very much to Jordan Scholl, co-screenwriter and executive producer of How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which is in cinemas now.
1: Thanks so much, Richard, and thanks for having me.
0: Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.